Have you ever considered the health of your pelvic floor? Have you ever even looked at your own vagina? Like, do you know where everything is and what everything is? If you're shyly saying no to yourself, you're not alone. If you have no idea what your pelvic floor is, you're also not alone. And if you think it's just about Kegels, well, you're in the right place because it's way more than that. You are listening to Mamas in Training, the podcast that gives aspiring and expecting moms guidance and community from moms who have been there. And I'm your host, Jessica Lorian. However, I'm not yet a mom due to an autoimmune disease, so I made it my mission while I heal to learn everything I can about motherhood so that together we can be as prepared as possible. Today, we are throwing it back to 2021, where I got the full scope of the pelvic floor and how we can care for it from the amazing pelvic floor coach, Kim Vopney, and physiotherapist, Kate Roddy. You'll hear in this episode what your pelvic floor actually is, how to prepare it for birth and postpartum, even if you have a C-section, and we'll begin to tear down some of the shame and taboo feelings around our down there. This episode is sponsored by Boom Boom Blowout Bodysuits. Picture this, you're out for a day of errands with your baby. They've already soaked their fresh diaper and the extras you brought, but after a quick change, they're finally sleeping. So you grab yourself a quick coffee, but then they wake up screaming. So you pick them up and what is on your hands? It's a blowout. There goes the last diaper, the baby's clothes, and your own clothes. Well, with Boom Boom Blowout bodysuits, diaper blowouts are covered. Literally, the entire back of each bodysuit contains waterproof polyurethane laminate fabric that is bonded between two layers of super soft, unbleached organic cotton, making blowouts no longer a stress. Trust me, I saw it in action, and it's amazing how strong these bodysuits are. So this Mother's Day, treat yourself to less stress and let Boom Boom Baby Company cover that mess by clicking the link in the show notes and using the code MAMASPOD25. That's M-A-M-A-S-P-O-D-25 for 25% off at checkout because nobody has time for a blowout. We begin with Kim and her first experience with birth and the pelvic floor. Grade six, I remember seeing, a, it was a sex ed class and they showed us a childbirth video and it wasn't painted in the nicest picture, probably good for birth control at the time, but um, but I sort of went home and I looked at my mom differently and, it, and that was what kind of initially planted the seed that I'm never going to do this. And, uh, but then I was curious and I would ask my mom and my mom was a nurse, an OR nurse. She was very open with sharing everything anatomical, like perfect at the time. You know, it was a little bit cringy because you're a kid. But now I look back and I'm very grateful that she did. And she didn't shy away from any conversation at all. And she just told us the facts, which I love. And so she had episiotomy births, which was pretty standard at the time. So in the 1970s, she had chronic back pain. She had a tummy that wouldn't flatten no matter how much exercise she did. She eventually stopped exercising because of a leaky bladder incontinence. So at the time, 
I didn't know all the terms. So it was, you know, that's just what happens when you have babies. And so again, it was this picture painted that I was not going to do this. I had no intention of dealing what my mom was dealing with. I was very active. I wanted to stay active. And then I uh, watched my sister-in-law give birth. So she had used midwives. She was in a hospital. She was in a sideline birth position. Everything that I had never seen before up to that point. And I remember walking into the room. So we came in. We were waiting outside the hospital door, and, they, and we got the go-ahead to come in. And so my husband and I went in, and my mother-in-law. And we were, you know, six feet at, from the foot of the bed. And Tr- Trace was in a sideline birth position. And, and I remember thinking, how do you give birth in that position? And then I also remember, oh, my God, that's a big vagina. <laughs> like Those were my first two <laughs> thoughts. And I was like, <laughs> and I was standing there. And we came in at the worst possible time. It didn't stall her, but I would never, ever recommend anybody go in to, to watch a birth right when the babe is crowning. Like it was, but it didn't stall my sister-in-law, so it was fine. But so I watched my niece being born. It was absolutely transformative. And I remember the next day asking my sister-in-law, you know, is everything falling out of you? Because I saw how big everything opened up and... And she said, no, it kind of feels, you know, it's a little sore, it's a little tender. But so that kind of was like my first thought of, okay, I can do this. And it's, it's different than anything I'd seen before. I loved what I saw with the midwives, then deciding I did wanting to have a different story than my mom, being inspired by my sister-in-law. And then the next year I used midwives. I was in the hospital. I was in a sideline birth position as well. I actually thought I was going to be in an upright. I had it all planned out that I would be in an upright kind of semi-squat position over the back of the hospital bed. And I tried that for 20 minutes and nothing was happening. And then as soon as I went into side lying, it was like two pushes later and it was done. So it, it, was, it was amazing, it was awesome. In the end, like years later, I found out I actually had a, a fairly common birth injury, but there was no screening. I'd never heard of pelvic floor physio until years after. And, and even with the knowledge I had, I said, more information needs to be out there for women to prepare for birth and optimize their recovery. And then that started that started the next now 16 years. It's amazing. I love how it completely came full circle for you. Yeah, it's amazing. And then Kate, I have to read this. You have this on your website. And this is just <laughs> amazing to me. You said that you took a hard pass on perennial massage to prep you and your vaginal muscles for giving birth. Then your baby arrived at 11 pounds, 5 ounces, and your postnatal vagina immediately wished that her prenatal vagina had prepared better for such a monumental event. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that statement so much. Okay, so I need to know, Kate, how did you feel in that moment? Clearly, I can can sense it from those words, but how did that feel? Well, I just felt like, like shit I wasn't prepared at all I didn't um you know very different from Kim was that like I had no concept my mother had six children but like we don't talk about that stuff right like my Mm -hmm. sort of like female pelvic health talk was here's a menstrual pad and that was it my sisters taught me how to use a tampon and honest to god that was me fiddling in the bathroom one day so I didn't know anything I you know, kind of, and I wasn't first out of my friends to have babies or anything like that. Like, you know, I was probably middle of the pack in my friend group and, and no one talked about any of this. So, Mm. you know, even the OBGYN, I, I had OBGYNs and, um, the, the woman on 
the the ward that day. So sort of like head honcho of OB department, because I had residents in the room with me. She was about four foot 11. She was this tiny little woman. And she just kept coming into the room and like sticking her head in like that and being like, how's it going? And she just kept telling me that I wasn't pushing hard enough. I had been pushing for, well, at that point, probably two and a half hours. And at one point, every time I stopped pushing, I felt the sharpest pain up in the top of my rib cage. And the one nurse said, oh, um, it's the epidural. And I was like, no, the epidural doesn't go that high anyways. And then uh, the nurses switched shifts, right? You think that the nurse is going to see you through this and then 7 a.m. comes and it's like, nope, see you later. So the second nurse came in and I complained about this sharp pain. And what was happening was every time I stopped pushing, my son was jabbing his heel into the top of my rib. Because as I pushed down, he finally would stretch out. So she was like, no, that's his foot. And that was the first time where I was like, holy shit, his head is down there and his foot is up here. Yeah. So then by the time, like, they ended up using a vacuum, um, which after three hours, you know, the nurse was, she was preparing me for the interventions that were coming, vacuum, forceps, C-section. And like, I was, I was going down that channel. And she said, how do you feel about that? And after three hours, I can honestly say, I don't care how the hell he comes out anymore. I don't get him out. So they used yeah. the vacuum. He came out and he they held him upside down, like very movie-like. He was being held upside down when they mm-hmm. pulled him out. And um, I just remember thinking, like, not, oh, there's my son. It was, oh, my God, he's huge. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And he came out of me. Right? And he, yeah, like that wasn't even a concept. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I was convinced that my son was bigger than the four foot 11 woman who kept telling me I wasn't pushing hard <laughs> enough. And I was kind of like, he's bigger than you are. Like, yeah. you do this. So, oh my gosh. I mean, like that was first birth. And to be honest, two years later, nothing had changed. It's I didn't educate. I didn't know. I wasn't told anything. It wasn't until after the birth of my daughter that um, a, we hired a new physio at the sports practice I worked at when she came in and lo and behold, she was a pelvic physio and she did like this workshop for us. And I remember like nudging my work bestie and was like, do we do this? Like we, is she qualified? Like, what did she need to do to do this? And that's how I found out about pelvic physio. I had no idea that my profession was doing that. Wow. So. Well, yeah. I feel geared up to have the best team here to chat and kind of guide us through. Kim Vapney, you're the pelvic floor coach. And Kate Roddy, you're a physiotherapist and also the CEO of the Kegel Release Curve, which we'll talk a little bit about in a, in a little bit. So I think before we even dive into this conversation, the question that we need to cover, there's a couple questions we need to cover. But the first question we need to cover is when we talk pelvic floor, what the heck are we talking about? Because I know many women don't even know, like, are we talking about the vagina? Are we talking about the uterus? Are we talking about your core? Or like, what are we talking about? Kate, go ahead. I'll hold up my pelvis and you can talk through it. I've got my pelvis, unless you have your model there too. (laughs) No, your your pelvis will be better. Yeah, there, there we go. So what you're looking at is all the weight is the bone, right? Your bony pelvis is part of your skeleton and it's sort of that butterfly shaped, um, sort of structure and then from the top of it comes our our spine so the pelvis 
is basically this beautiful bowl shape that holds a lot of our organs at the bottom. So it's going to hold our uterus. It's going to hold our bladder. It's going to hold our rectum. It's going to, on top of all of that, it has all of our intestines that stack up and then some other stuff, right? The liver, the kidneys, all of the above, right? But in the bowl of it, right down at the bottom, that's where our pelvic sexual organs and our urological organs are, right? In that nice bowl. So the pelvic floor is the layer below all of that, right? It's the muscles that contract to support the bony pelvis. It also, well, it stabilizes the bony pelvis, sorry. It supports our pelvic organs. It's sphincteric, some of them. So you've got your rectal sphincter and then you've got your vaginal sphincter. And sphincteric just means it squeezes, right? So that's what stops us from peeing and pooping our pants. Um, it also has sexual function. So those muscles contracting and relaxing are what causes the blood flow and the circulation to get us to climax. And then the other one is the sump pump. So anytime muscles pump in our body, right? When you're on a plane, they tell you to pump your ankles to get the blood flowing so that we're not getting blood clots or swollen feet. Same thing in our bony pelvis. So those muscles contract and relax, and that causes a lot of fluid distribution, which is lymphatic fluid, which is our waste disposal fluid that we're trying to get rid of and get into our liver and our kidneys to then process out. So five functions, really. It's, um, mm. it's the basement of our core. Core is just that really big umbrella term that we use to refer to many different muscle groups that help to stabilize and support our body in both stationary positions, but also when we propel ourselves or when we're in movement, we need that stability. Kim, a wonderful job with your modeling. It was just perfect. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And Kim, did I, <laughs> Kim, did I miss anything? <laughs> Would you add to that? No, I think, I mean, the only thing, other thing that I point out is, is the attachment points is just, mm. so we've got the pubic joint at the front, we have the two sit bones here, and then Good. the tailbone at the yeah. back. And there's like a little bit of a diamond shape. It's layers of muscle. It's not just one. I think a lot of people have mm. the conception that it's one muscle, but it is actually a group and there's a huge blood supply, a lot of nerves that go through there. Yeah. And they're all the jobs that Kate said there, there's incredible, important jobs that these muscles are responsible for. And it's in, in our core, the foundation of our core, as she said, and we get zero information about it. Absolutely. It's one of the most integral parts of so many facets of our life. So how is it that we have zero information shared with us, told to us? Yep. It's crazy. Well, not after this episode. So clearly <laughs> there's so many different areas that you just covered, Kate. So Kim, when you're dealing with somebody as a coach, what type of dysfunction are we talking about? You know, and I mean, clearly it seems like there can be so many areas of dysfunction when we're talking about your pelvic floor, but what do you find most common? For me, what I see the two most common for sure are incontinence and prolapse. Um, there's other ones that can be tied. So back pain is common. Pelvic pain is common. And within pelvic pain, there are so many different aspects of it. It could be sexual pain. It could be pain with touch. It could be just overall pain with movement, but absolutely with pain. It's not that I can't help, but I really want to make sure. And, and so if somebody has <clears throat> say tailbone pain, then, you know, I may proceed with them a little bit, but generally it, I, I, I need to be very careful that what I do is not going to exacerbate. So I usually with pain people, I'm always recommending that they see a physio first, if they have access to that, if they don't, I will do my best, but I do proceed 
with caution with that. But to answer your first question, incontinence and prolapse. Usually stress urinary incontinence is the most common. Pelvic organ prolapse, so that's where the bladder, uterus, and or rectum have shifted out of their optimal position and they can start to bulge into or descend into the vagina. And that is the one that I find has the biggest mental health toll. Uh, it, yes. it affects our mojo the most, I would say. Mm-hmm. Incontinence is, is everyone's, everyone accepts it as normal. Everybody puts pad in and just carries on and, and it's not so um, Personally detrimental, I guess I would say. Of, yeah. But the other piece I find on that is there's also a lot of people who almost self-diagnose themselves with overactive bladder. And the, they think that because they go to the bathroom all the time, they must have an overactive bladder or they have a small bladder. And so they, there's, we have to also step in and say, well, you know, could be, there is medical people, there is a medical definition of overactive bladder, but it's not that common. And bladders, yeah, there's different size really, but very, very rarely is there ever a too small bladder. Usually it is habits that have created the frequency that people are experiencing. And when you can I help people identify some of the habits that may have contributed to what they're dealing with. So peeing just in case, avoiding liquids, you know, going to the bathroom multiple times during an exercise class, those types of things can be changed. So just as the bladder had been trained to signal more often, we can train it to signal Reverse at appropriate times. Yeah. And um, yeah, so those are the most common that I help people with. And as a result, it will, you know, back pain will often resolve Again, pelvic pain typically I'm referring on and then I support afterwards once they have, have done the internal work with a physio. And, um, but incontinence and prolapse, I would say, are the two most common that I'm dealing with. So, Kate, when people come to you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you would probably recommend that they come before there's even some sort of dysfunction, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm trying to advocate at this point is that it would be awesome if all women could even just see a public physio once as that empowering visit to sort of go. I mean, we see a doctor without something wrong. We call that an annual checkup, right? That's sort of where I want to see pelvic physio position themselves is it, it is that once a year investment into our pelvic health. And, you know, it, is a lot less daunting. It becomes more normalized. It's also, it would be much more empowering and confident inducing for women to sort of go, yeah, like my vagina is great, rocks. Right. I'm really strong <laughs> at it. So, exactly. and that's a lot better and less, almost shame driven than when like we're peeing our pants or we think her vagina's falling out or, you know, simple things, even constipation is such a huge um, symptom after after pregnancy so Mm -hmm. um and a lot of it you know and kim can speak to this just with uh sort of a rectal prolapse or a rectocele we call it so um and and things that you can do and things where you may need to look at other interventions for and so kate when i i want to take a minute to sort of pull down the curtains pull down the walls because i think what holds women back the most is the unknown Right. So one of the questions that I had that came through my audience was, what can a patient expect from seeing a physio like your like yourself? What would an appointment look like? Right. So what it usually starts with is if someone comes in, they don't have any symptoms. So if this is a let's say they're pregnant and this is completely like, hey, I got told I should see a pelvic physio. So we sort of run through a lot of education as to what they should expect a little bit like through the trimesters. 
um, things that they may notice, things that they should um, sort of like start to do because as your body changes with the the weight change, right? Different muscle groups are going to start to come on as sort of the overactive muscle versus the ones that are almost on vacay just because of the nature of what's happening, right? So your abdominals can stay on, but a lot of the time they decide to have a vacation, right? So (laughs) then we have like our glute muscles, right? Our buttock muscles, they become really like that's what's holding on to the back of your pelvis. And they can get really tight. So we do a lot of preventative, yeah, those big ones off the back, right? Mm. So for the video portion of this. (laughs) Mm. Um, So a lot of rolling things out, maybe rolling on a tennis ball or a lacrosse ball where women can easily get into those positions on their sides. Um, And then I also bring what I call the low-hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is their abdominals. We get very overactive in our oblique muscles up around our ribcage. And so I sort of teach women how to use silicone cups to release some of the upper fascia, um, fascia being the connective tissue that holds all of our muscle groups together. Sometimes fascia and muscles up along our rib cages get really, really tight. And when that gets really tight, we have a downward pressure, right? It's like squeezing a balloon at the top and it bulges down at the bottom. So if we can kind of keep that a little bit less active, we have less pressure going down onto our pelvic floors, um, the baby's already pushing over top of that. So anything we can do to relieve some of that pressure is helpful. And all of this is sort of prepping for the big, you know, like I haven't even touched the vagina or even talked about it yet. So there's a lot of stuff that I love educating women about as the big hole, right? That big umbrella term is your core consists of a lot of areas. And then we get down to that very bottom, right? Which is the pelvic floor and educating women that it isn't one muscle. Um, Letting them know about the tailbone. Uh, Kim pointed out that the tailbone is one of our insertional um, fixed points. Almost every muscle actually attaches to the tailbone. So when women have fallen on their tailbones, uh, we live in Canada, Kim and I, so we do winter here. And so like we fall (laughs) on ice a lot and women hurt their tailbones and the muscles absolutely respond. Um, And then there is an internal. Right. A lot of people don't know that Um, we do do an internal exam and that internal exam can feel a little bit daunting. Um, But I sort of say I'm as equally qualified as your OBGYN when it comes to the muscles of your vagina. And so we um, it's a gloved hand. We don't use a speculum, which some women are like, "Ooh, great. We hate that. (laughs) So just a gloved hand. um, And it's very I I explain everything that we're about to do. So Kim's got her her puppet or her velvet and I've got my silicone (laughs) Sally. We are so prepared today, Kim. I love it. Oh, my gosh. This is amazing. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't see that. No, no, no. I just brought it. I, I had everything. Um, and so it's single finger. I do not have a gloved hand, but single finger would go right at the base of your vagina. Okay. And then once a woman, I sort of like give her a couple of big deep breaths for her just to get accommodated. And then if she's okay with that, we piggyback the second finger right alongside so that they're pretty much side by side at the base. And then at that point, I just usually do a little bit of pressure to orient them. So right now I'm pushing down at five or sorry, six o'clock. Then I would come out to say five o'clock, seven o'clock. And then sometimes I reach around the corner. Okay. It's these around the corner is where we're trying to locate obturator internus, which is one of our hip rotator muscles. 
and it often gives us a lot of grief and we don't know about it. Um, and then we try the other one on the other side. Sometimes we flip around, okay? And then I'm actually trying to feel up for the bladder, okay, or the cervix. And then I put a little bit of pressure or I'll do a sweep more so to see what that feels like for women because some of them, even with that amount of movement, right, a lot of women are going to complain about painful sex. And so that gives me an idea of maybe why is if even my fingers doing a little bit of a swivel is causing them discomfort and guarding, that gives me an, an idea of what those muscles are doing to protect them. Um, and then uh, after all of that, I then tell them to give me a big deep breath and give me their best pelvic floor contraction. And women will sometimes say, is, is that a Kegel? And I go, yeah, yeah, that's what that is. So give me your best Kegel or pelvic floor contraction. And Kim and I feel very strongly that those two words are synonymous. And then they'll give me that squeeze and a lift. Okay. So a pelvic floor contraction is the two of those qualitative components. A pelvic floor contraction both needs to contract and relax. So I'm looking for both of those components. Mm. If I just feel this tightening, the tightening, and I go, okay, relax, and they don't really know what to do, then that tells me a lot about their system. Um, sometimes I'll only feel the squeeze and I'll work on, okay, let's try and get the lift, right? So the squeeze is the sphincteric superficial muscles. And the lift is the deeper muscles. Those are part of the sling. So once I have a woman who has both the qualities, then I go, you're at a three out of five and it is great. Three mm. out of five is great because I know that we can work with the strength. But if you're below a three, sometimes I only feel squeeze. Sometimes I only feel a lift. Unfortunately for some, I just feel like a flicker. And then we have some work to do. And that's where my jump is a little bit harder. But if I can get the two components working together, then it's like, hey, you got great form. You're just not strong. You just got to practice that. And then that's great. So, Kim, let's touch back on what Kate was talking about with Kegels, because I think most often when we hear pelvic floor or your pelvic floor health, people tend to say, well, yeah, I do Kegels or, oh, I should do some more Kegels or it's somehow connected. And that's also the only thing that we usually talk about or usually know. So educate us on Kegels. How do you properly do one? And should they be given all of the, I guess, praise that they seem to get? Or are there other things that we really should be focusing on? Yeah, so a, a Kegel exercise is, it was first... Uh, whatever, designed or named after Dr. Arnold Kegel. And what he saw, and I think was amazing, is he had women following childbirth who were experiencing challenges with their pelvic floor, and he recognized that their ability to do the contract, lift, and let go was hindered or compromised in some way. And he sometimes noticed people couldn't feel it. So even if they were maybe doing it, they had no sense of what they were actually doing. So he used something, a biofeedback device, to help women be able to make the connection between visualization, seeing something happening on a gauge in reference to what they were asking their muscles to do. So it was, it was a biofeedback, which is still used in all, not just pelvic therapy, but all types of therapies. And that was how it started back in the forties. And what has happened along the way is the, the belief of what a Kegel is has been a little bit misconstrued. So people view it as just a squeeze. They don't necessarily appreciate that there's a lift component to it. So a lot of people are 
going around squeezing, thinking they're doing a Kegel, but they may be using their inner thighs or they may be using their glute muscles and not actually coming in to use the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what was happening, and this is kind of the, the progression that I've seen over the years that I've been doing this, is it was Kegels and then it became... Um, thankfully there was a few people talking about movement so adding kegels to movement and that's kind of a a big philosophy that i preach from a retraining perspective and then getting back to not having to do kegels all the time but then it became well not everybody should be doing kegels because most people have a hypertonic pelvic floor or an overactive group of muscles so then the, the recommendation was don't do kegels just focus on relaxing and so then we had people saying, well, I've been told I shouldn't do Kegels. And, and then, well, I've been told that I should, and but I tried them and they don't work. So there's all this kind of misconception. And we have research even to show that the majority of people are doing them incorrectly. So they may think they're doing them correctly, but aren't. So that's going to obviously not lead to any change. Then there's some people who have only been focusing on the relaxation and noticing that their problem isn't getting better either. And the challenge there is if we aren't taking the muscle through the full range of motion at some point, we benefit from doing that because it reminds the muscle, it increases blood flow and circulation. And sometimes we even have a piece of research that shows that when we do a max contraction, sometimes that can elicit a a relaxation as well. So again, I'm not suggesting that everybody has to max contract and then get a full relaxation, Mm -hmm. but we, we benefit from a balance in our training. And So it's kind of a whole body approach. And when you can work with a physio, ideally first, to learn how to do Kegels correctly, then that can transform any other training that you do. So in my world, I don't do internal evaluation and treatment. If somebody has worked with a physio and they have determined how to do them correctly, that's great. We kind of go with what they have learned. But a lot of people haven't. Either they don't have access to, some people maybe feel a little bit intimidated at first, but my job is to help people as, as much as I can within my scope. So I use visualization. I use things like the vulva puppet to point out, you know, actions and common ones. So there's different cues that physios will use or um, other trainers like myself will use. The pick up blueberries with your vagina and your anus is a common one. Um, imagine a jellyfish softly floating and then propelling up to the surface of the ocean, sip a smoothie through a straw with your vagina. Um, if you have a male partner, you can imagine pulling the penis deeper into you and then letting it go. You could, if you have a partner that's not male, you can ask, you could even use your own biofeedback. So your own fingers are good biofeedback. A penis is a good biofeedback as well. Or yes, there are devices out there, but what I always again recommend is before you invest in a device, invest in a physio first. It's actually oftentimes cheaper than the cost of that device. (laughs) And then again, you'll understand how to do a Kegel correctly. And then if a product is going to benefit you, because in some cases it may not be the right option. So Mm -hmm. when you can understand how to activate, like contract and lift and let go of the pelvic floor, then the next step is add it into movement. So movement, say like a bridge or a squat or a a one leg stand, like a weight transfer type exercise, Ah. ideally getting to the point where like we want to train the pelvic floor dynamically, kind of as a retraining perspective. But then we kind of we, we, we have to then progress from there and allow the pelvic floor to then respond to whatever it is. The idea is not to have to think about picking up a blueberry every single time you pick something up or every single time you want your pelvic floor to work. 
we use it as a retraining. And maybe for some activities, you will always use that cue, maybe depending on the person. But ideally, we're trying to retrain the pelvic floor to respond to the like a, a term that's used is tension to task. So how much does the pelvic floor need to come on to lift that or to push that door open or to pick up your child? And so long answer, but learn how to do Kegels correctly, whether it's through visual. I have a video on my YouTube channel called The Core Breath, which tells you how we can coordinate the pelvic floor with breath, mm-hmm. how we then add it into movement and then eventually progress on from there. But I do, at the end of the day, still believe that there's a place for an element of a Kegel practice in in your day. So whether it's a, an isolated set of Kegels or whether you incorporate it into movement for say five minutes or so, if and, and if I say every day, it means people will do it about three to four times a week and that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and then see your you physio. Your yeah, then see your physio, as Kate said, as a check-in once a year even if you have no symptoms, but especially if you do, and more if you if you need to. I'll link that video in the show notes so people can easily find it, because I think that's part of it, just not knowing where to go and how to start, you know. So I'm a mama in training. Many of the women listening are mamas in training. My goal is to try to get the women who are not even pregnant yet, or who are hopefully pregnant, but haven't touched on these things. So what can we do? So, you know, what can you do before pregnancy and then also going into pregnancy to prepare for birth and help you be as strong as possible and then hopefully, you know, move through that that birth and then postpartum as efficiently as possible? Go, Kate. Um, so seeing a pelvic physio, understanding what your vagina does and the pelvic floor within it. And then in terms of preparation if we're going to go all the way to sort of that ninth month of pregnancy, we just posted a video where we had videos done and I sort of go through the concept of perineal massage. And that's sort of what my device is really designed for is to try and uh, relax those muscles. And the reason we want to relax them at the very end, and it's not just about kegeling, is that Um, they've actually become overactive, right? You've had anywhere from five to 11 pounds, five ounces sitting on top of your bladder (laughs) and pelvic floor. (laughs) And so with that, there has been an increase in activity to support Mm -hmm. that. So with that increase in activity always happening, there's an inability for them to relax. And so we actually need to relearn how to relax those muscles going into labor for that baby to make the smoothest exit possible if uh, we're having vaginal birth. So um, perineal massage was one of the things that I read about when I was pregnant and it just became the, oh, well, like I can't reach down there. I can barely wipe. So I don't know how I'm getting my fingers down there to do this sort of weird thing, action and yeah, I didn't have my partner do it. So, um, and I don't think that that speaks to our bond or connection. I just, I didn't want him down there and he didn't want to go down there and he probably (laughs) thought he was going to get something out of it. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I wasn't into that. So perineal massage, what I explain in the video is that, you know, when we talk to professional athletes about their game day, right? So Super Bowl, Boston Marathon, Ironman triathlon, and you ask them, how are you feeling before this big day? They're going to report that they're feeling a little bit nervous. They're feeling a little bit anxious, but 
a lot of them will say like, I feel ready. Like I feel prepared. Like we're ready for this. I'm excited. And if you ask a pregnant woman what she feels before Labor Day, first time mama, she is scared. She has no yes. idea what's going to happen. There's a lot of unknown. And really the difference is preparation, right? How the hell do you prepare mm -hmm. to give birth, right? And so yeah. there's going to be a lot of sensations on the day, right? I remember like my first couple of contractions, I remember being like, ah, this feels like a heavy period. I got this. No, no, it got way worse than that, <laughs> right? And I didn't anticipate what I was going to feel in my vagina, right? What that was going to feel like on my perineum. So the idea with perineal massage is to start experiencing some of those stretch sensations that are going to happen. And you don't, your body, when it hasn't done something, goes into an alarmed guarding state. And that's very counterintuitive to what we need right. to happen on the day. So right. the more you know what's going, it's going to feel like, not just visualization, not just breathing, actually stretching that area. Yeah. Your body will go, it's like doing the splits. You've never done the splits right. before. Your body You're stops you before you tear them. something. Yeah, yeah. But if you have ever done any 30-day yoga challenge, you got better from day one to day 30. And that's the idea with perineal massage. How do we like build it into a practice so we incorporate breathing we incorporate like sounds right ambient noise maybe it's a playlist taylor swift on repeat whatever it is <laughs> it's it's trying to recreate some familiarity of the practice so that on the day of it's very familiar it's not alarming it's something we've experienced our brain doesn't go to bad places because mm -hmm. the preparation's been there. And that's really the difference between a pregnant mother and a professional athlete for game day. So. A hundred percent. And that's a kind of a term or, or something that I use to get people to visualize the need to prepare for birth. Labor and birth are demanding physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And just as we would train for another event that's physically, emotionally, spiritually challenging, we should be training yeah. for birth. And so I, I took a look at like, and this was after I gave birth. So I didn't know, I didn't know that I knew about perineal massage and I did it. So I used a product called the Epino, which was, uh, it's a product out of Germany, unfortunately is no longer available in the United States, but it is available in Europe and Australia. So if you know somebody in either of those countries, <laughs> I would highly recommend connecting with somebody. Um, and if you can't, Kate's Kegel release curve is amazing as well. And I love because hers actually goes beyond just training for birth. It's got a postpartum recovery aspect to it that I love, but Perineal massage is something that I do highly, highly recommend. But I also looked at it as, and said, okay, well, it, birth is really something that I believe should be a dynamic event, not something like active, not something that we we go into into it where we just lie down in the bed and we're like, okay, here I'm here, and okay, tell me when I'm supposed to push. It, it it's not something that's done to you. You're an active participant in in the process. And when we can have strength and suppleness and endurance in the muscles that support us in the most optimal birth positions, then when it comes time to that event, kind of as Kate was saying, when we have prepared for it, the body's like, okay, yep, got it, no problem. Rather than, oh, somebody told me squats are beneficial in labor and you've hardly ever, your squat involves sitting down and standing up from a toilet a right. couple times a day. And then you go try to squat in birth. It's very challenging and hard and you're not, your body, you're not gonna do very mm -hmm. well in it. So if we have done lots of squat prep in our pregnancy, 
when it comes time to doing that, when we're actually birthing, then yeah, great. We, our body's like, okay, got this, no problem. Right. So I think we, we benefit from taking kind of a fitness viewpoint and use the principle of specificity from fit fitness that says, if I want to run a marathon, I'm going to run progressive distances up to maybe about a week or so before then I'm going to have a tapering off period where I focus just on relaxation and rest and building up my energy stores. Then I'm going to go and I'm going to perform on race day. Mm -hmm. And then there is a very intentional recovery yes. practice built in that that is the same for any other type of event that we would do. And I highly I really truly believe that's what we should be doing from a birth perspective as well. So incorporating and perineal massage as something that I, I view of, I remember when I did it, it was a way to prevent tearing. That was really my only thought of what it's for was just to prevent tearing. And yes, we have some research to show that there's a higher rate of intact perineum versus non, but I view it more of a way as Kate was describing as a way to learn how to relax in the presence of sensations of stretch and pressure and discomfort. Yes. So trying as closely as we can to mimic Those what sensations. we will be experiencing mm -hmm. so that it's not the first time. And, and then our body kind of goes into, ah, what's this? And we, we start to clench up and, and kind of freeze in that moment. When we've experienced it, we're like, yep, okay, I know this was happening. I know what to do. And, and when we can kind of talk to our pelvic floor and kind of yeah. say, okay, here we go. We got we to gotta relax here. We got to do, you know, we become much more, I, I kind of struggle with the word embodied in a way, but I feel like it's kind of a process where we have connected with our body and we're working with it, not just allowing things to happen to it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think before we started recording here, we were talking a little bit about sort of the stigma that's connected to, especially doing any of this work and especially using certain tools like you have the KR curve, Kate. And so I think it's, it's not, you know, when we're, when we see any devices like this or just even physically using our own hands or the hands of our partner, it doesn't have to be something sexual or it's not about a masturbation, but it's clearly, you know, just like you would use a Stairmaster to train your body or you would use, you know, a bar in ballet to work on, you know, a ballerina is going to use the bar to work on her stretching and her flexibility. It's the same sort of thing. And I love that we're talking about this because I really, I want to push away that stigma. And I think, you know, many women might come across either of your Instagram channels there and be a little bit like, oh my gosh, what is this? You know, but that's why we're talking about it. And, and that's why I think we need to move past it. And that mindset of preparing for something just like any other pro athlete would prepare is, or even not a pro athlete, preparing for a speech, you know, say you're going to give a TED talk, or you're going to teach a class, you know, you're going to prepare your voice and your body and in a certain way, right? So I also want to make sure before we wrap up that we just talk a little bit about postpartum and moving back into what that might look like. And Kate, I know you so beautifully talked about relating to sex, for example, you know, you say someone who had knee surgery, you wouldn't just go tell them to go ahead and start running again. And you definitely wouldn't tell them to do a marathon. And I loved that connection because it's the same way that I think we all have to think about moving into any sort of sexual activity 
And it's not just that once those six weeks come, oh, you're good. Okay, dive right back in. And then what I want you to really touch on, which is I think is the most important, is these steps that you outlined. So can you just walk us through how women after birth can get reacquainted with themselves and really have that be the first step and not the first step be, okay, let's try sex. Right. Exactly. I strongly believe and I do it because I didn't do it. So I strongly believe in the fourth trimester. So, you know, those first 12 weeks is really about healing. And it's funny being a sports physio for 16 years. I mean, I wouldn't let anybody who's had any knee surgery do a whole lot in those first 12 weeks. I mean, six weeks would be the bare minimum. The reason why six weeks gets talked about is that that is the reasonable amount of time that we are no longer concerned about a risk of infection. Mm. You are not okay after six weeks. We just don't think you're going to be back in the hospital with an infection, uterine, or say it was a knee surgery, like some bacteria in the wound or the, the joint gets infected. So six weeks is just that. Okay, so it doesn't mean that your body's prepared. And how do you prepare it? Again, like Kim said, we want active participants in this. This is not just like time will heal all. Right. That's a, a nice statement to make. But in this circumstances, activity and doing something for yourself. So first thing that I advocate, so we have this five-step protocol that we have been talking about and trying to educate women on. And the first one is take a look right? Women don't look at their vaginas. We don't look at our vulvas. Yeah. Um, that's where the stigma and the shame still comes in. So I want women to take a look at their vulvas before they give birth and then take yes. a look after. So quick little mirror check, right? Are you still really puffy? Like you go kind of like, wow, that's, that's really swollen still. Is there redness? Can you see a visible wound, right? Does it look kind of red and irritated? Or you may even notice a little bit of a scab line, okay? Mm. So we want that all gone. If you're okay after step one, you get to proceed to step two, okay? This is one of those, like, you don't get to pass to step five <laughs> after one, right? It is sequential. Don't pass go. <laughs> yeah, don't pass go, ladies, promise. So after, so step two then is just light touch. So we'll bring silicone salia. Light touch is just feeling along down around your perineum. So the space between your vaginal entrance and your rectal entrance come down along your labias. Okay. That's actually where you find some of your sex muscles. So feeling all around there. If the tip of your finger is causing pain in this area, penetrative intercourse is going to be a problem. And I do For not... Sure recommend that you venture into that okay yep. so then step three is you actually do a little bit of an internal light touch okay so you're hooking your finger just into the vaginal entrance you're pulling at the sides of your perineum okay and you're seeing what that feels like okay you're not really doing a whole lot of massage but maybe you can sustain that and that's fine if that hurts, if that feels painful, if you feel tension in other parts of your body so your jaw, mm -hmm. You find that you're tensing up around your shoulders. That is your central nervous system. It's your fight or flight response saying, you're not actually so okay with this. Yeah, okay? we're not ready. Yeah, not ready. So then step four is usually for the people who unfortunately have had a tear or they've had an episiotomy, that scar tissue is going to take a little bit more time to heal. Okay. Our body will always lay down amazing scar tissue such that the structural integrity is really, really good. 
but then it makes it a little bit stiffer. So we need to mobilize that tissue a little bit more because stretch is going to feel differently on that tissue. And that stretch is coming from either a male partner or some sort of other sex toy or device that you choose to use for your pleasure or intimacy. So you may do more of that perineal massage. We're trying to desensitize this area. It's not going to tear open, okay? Mm -hmm. But what it is going to do is it's going to tell your brain, hey, this is vulnerable tissue. We just laid this down. So it's giving the brain a stay away vibe, but you're trying to say, we're fine. We're good. Just get used to it. Okay. So that's what mm. desensitization is. So you're going to spend a little bit of time on the scar. And then the fifth one, the most fun one, the one that women would never think of, my God, have your own orgasm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just yeah. whatever it takes, whatever pleases you. It's a great way if you can get yourself to climax to reach orgasm. That is all of your pelvic floor muscles working in synchrony, pumping blood involuntarily to a point of climax, the feel good. It's a great way to check your plumbing. And it's also a great way to build arousal, right? And that's such a problem for postpartum women is where did our arousal go? Where did our libido go? Mm -hmm. And when we have an orgasm, that actually it's a self-fulfilling little cycle. So if we can create the first one, you may actually look over at your partner a little more longingly and think, yeah. Yeah, let's do this. So, and that's my five-step protocol. And I love it. I want women to be doing this even if you do not feel like having sex. I know you don't. I didn't, not a lot of women do. It's more of the rarity. But again, you don't just get to go for the run without doing any of the rehab after a knee surgery. Absolutely. You got to do the strength work. You got to do the walking. You got to do the stretching. And then when you do want to feel like going for a run, you feel ready, you're going to thank yourself from doing all the steps. Then that's same with sort of penetrative sexual intercourse. The last little thing I just want to make sure that we touch on is for our mamas who might experience C-section or who have experienced C-section, I got a few questions about this. So what could be some concerns that could come up with the pelvic area that are common after a C-section? Or are there any? Yeah, can you take this one? Yeah, yeah. I think the the most common thing is people have a have a perception that because they haven't given birth vaginally, that their pelvic floor is fine, and that they wouldn't benefit from pelvic floor physio, that they won't experience incontinence, prolapse, any of the other challenges, and the that's not true. So, yes, there there's a little bit of less likely. So the risk is a bit decreased if you haven't given birth vaginally for things like incontinence and prolapse, but not as much as you would think. And what what I see most common, and I think Kate would say the same thing as well, is there's there's more people coming after cesarean who are experiencing that overactivity and the pain with sex and sort of the 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 tense muscles that, because as, as Kate was talking about, our body goes through this nine month adaptation where we have an increased load on the pelvic floor. We have the abdominal wall that's being stretched beyond its optimal length. We've got fascia, the connective tissue that's, that's stretching. So our core control mechanisms are altered and we have other things that are kind of trying to manage this along the way. And again, usually an overactivity comes in at some point that's typically not so overactivity in the pelvic floor, sometimes some gripping into the glutes. And when we hang on to that strategy, which most people do, because again, the body ad adapts to what what it's going through. And just because we've given birth, the body doesn't just go whoop and zip back mm -hmm. to where we were before. It's, it has adapted to this new state. 
And unless we give some stimulus to undo that or to retrain something or to, you know, to let go, to upregulate, downregulate, whatever it is, it will stay that way. And so with the knowledge of what's, what those changes are throughout pregnancy, with the knowledge of what we should be doing from a postpartum recovery perspective, with the knowledge that there can sometimes be overactivity with cesarean births, then people aren't so alarmed or they aren't now, some people get, there's like, they panic because they think, oh my God, what's this? Like what's happening that I've never experienced this before. Mm. And that can sometimes propel people to go get help right away. It can also stall people because they're afraid to know what it might be. And when we have the knowledge ahead of time, then it just, it puts us, knowledge is power. It puts us in in a place where we don't have to overreact. We just have to say, okay, this is, it's an adaptation. I understand what's happening. I know that there's help. This I can resolve this, and I think there's a there's you can go into things with it a little bit more calmness. Um, so another thing that happens with cesarean births is typically it, this is more so in the states. It doesn't I don't think it's as recommended quite as often in Canada, but usually in the states after a cesarean birth, people are sent home with an abdominal binder, and the and I I am a supporter of of wrapping. I like the term wrapping better than binding. Mm-hmm. I also believe that it's more pelvis rather than abdominal Mm. that's that's happening but it's something that I do support so Kate kind of recommended or was talking about that the need to recover and heal and the practices of mother warming or mother roasting are used in various cultures around the world and it's a belief that the first what we do in the first 40 days sets us up for the next 40 years and regardless of whether you have a vaginal or cesarean birth recognize that we've had nine months of adaptation there has been a, a birth, so that event, and sometimes people who have cesareans were pushing for a period of time before they went into their cesarean. And regardless, there is a, a I think, intention, intentional or very diligent recovery protocol we should be doing in those first six to eight weeks to allow that body to to heal, allow that tissue some time without the influence of gravity, ideally, giving us nutrition, the proper nutrition, having a support team around us, wrapping the belly so that we're giving the, the pelvis and, and um, lower abdomen, we're just giving them a little bit of external support, but we're rebuilding the internal support with pelvic floor initiated movement that helps increase blood flow. It helps increase um, nerve growth factor, circulation, all things that benefit healing. Mm. But right now, regardless, and, and I'd say cesarean birth people, will have forced rest on them almost. They can't be as mobile right. as, some, as some of the vaginal birth people can. So in some ways that, that, is, that could be argued as a benefit, right? Because they, they, they've been told because you've had this surgery or they just physically can't move quite as freely, then they, they actually can benefit more so from that rest because they're forced to. Mm. But I think vaginal birth people need to follow the same. the same thing, really. Do you feel more empowered about the strength, beauty, and resilience of your pelvic floor? I sure hope so. I don't know about you, but so much of this was news to me. And if you remember nothing else out of this episode, remember this. Get yourself to a pelvic floor physio, preferably during pregnancy, to see where your baseline is, but especially postpartum. Just because your OBGYN says you're good to go after six weeks, it doesn't mean you truly are. They don't have the specialty that a pelvic floor physio does to check the strength and the release of your pelvic floor. 
as well as the knowledge and the tools to get that strength back. You can find links to Kim and Kate in the show notes, as well as the book Your Pelvic Floor, written by Kim, and, of course, the Kegel Release Curve, created by Kate. This conversation needs to continue so that we can keep breaking down these stigmas. Are you empowered to learn more and to keep chatting about this? Then join us in the free Facebook group, Mamas in Training, where we don't hold back and no topic is off limits so that you can feel seen and heard, even if it's about your vagina. All you have to do is click on the link in the show notes and be welcomed in today. Put up a post asking about your pelvic floor and hear from other mamas what they have done to get their strength back or to keep it. And don't forget, we are in this together.